This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com slash weeds for 50% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. The Colonel's real invention isn't the secret blend of spices. It's the pressure frying method. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, we've got the, the full team back in studio. Boom. Ezra Klein, Sarah Cliff. I'm finally back. It's back great to be here. Back from her fried chicken vacation. Um, Sarah, Sarah's a vegetarian. She apparently did not eat any KFC. I didn't, no. At the KFC Museum. Nor take a vacation, for that matter. Um, yeah, she was working. <laughs> I mean, I did take a half an hour out of my day, too, to visit the Kentucky Fried Chicken I Museum heard you guys there. talking about this at work, so I'm, I'm framing that as working I well. am I am bitter about this because I once wrote an article for Slate about the origins of KFC, and I asked my editor if I could go to Kentucky to go to this dumb museum. And I was told no, that they would not pay for that. I had to just read some old books about KFC. I think the I, editor made the right decision, actually. I there is en- not much there. I also enjoy uh, the precise wording of that story. I really want to go to this dumb museum that's too <laughs> dumb to go to anyway, stupid museum. Nobody wants to go. I didn't want to go. It's like how Trump doesn't even want the Chinese drone back. <laughs> <laughs> so, but there was a reason Sarah was there. Yes. Um it is one of the things we're going to talk about on this podcast, in mm-hmm. addition to a huge new paper on trade and globalization and inequality that is summing up a lot of other papers over the years. And also it's magisterial <laughs> and also uh, a, a quick dive into why this emergent idea that we need a lot more place based policy as a reaction to the election uh, is probably going to get us policy oriented at the wrong places. So, so stay tuned for that bit of economic geography. But Sarah, you were in Kentucky. Why were you I in was, Kentucky? I was in Kentucky because I wanted to go somewhere that um, had had a lot of people sign up for Obamacare and voted really heavily for Trump. And it turns out Kentucky fits that definition quite well because I, um, in the wake of the election, which I and everyone else thought would go quite differently, I started wondering about people who had gained insurance under the Affordable Care Act and voted for Trump and kind of how they made those decisions. And so I found this area of southeastern Kentucky that went about um, 80 percent for Trump, had a huge increase in coverage under Obamacare, the biggest increase in the country. And how, how big was that increase? So um, we're talking 25 percent uninsured to 10 percent uninsured. That is Sorry, a that's huge the decline. fucking that's, drop. Can we, can we talk yeah. about a little bit just the kind of just like why Kentucky – yeah. ends up having this particular thing, right? It's, so it's like Kentucky is both had a lot of poor people who lacked insurance, yes. had a Democratic governor yes. who expanded Medicaid, but is also like a super right-wing state and national politics. Yes. So so one of the things that really they – Kentucky is the only state in the South that expanded M- Medicaid under um, the Affordable Care Act when the Medicaid expansion started, only state in the South that um, launched its own marketplace – and you had, um, you know, I talked to Steve Bashir, the former governor of Kentucky, before going there. And he, like, knew everyone in his state really hated Obamacare. And he said, you know what? Here's the thing I'm going to do. I'm going to launch Obamacare without calling it Obamacare. I'm going to, like, con people into getting health insurance. <laughs> and it fucking worked. Like, they signed up a half million people for health coverage. And then, well, it, it worked and it didn't work because um, the Democrats did not win the governorship. It, it was actually won by this guy, Matt Bevin, who— campaigned on dismantling Medicaid expansion, dismantling Medicaid. And then the state was won again by Donald Trump, who campaigned on repealing Obamacare. So I kind of went to Kentucky with this question about why does this state keep voting for people who very clearly promise to take away their health insurance? And can I note one other fascinating complexity of this as, as backdrop to your piece? Kentucky is the disproof of the political theory behind Obamacare, mm-hmm. the theory that if you just pass the law and if you can just implement the law and if you just get people receiving benefits from the law, the law will become popular. Mm-hmm. Kentucky is a place where the law did go into effect, where a lot of people did receive benefits, where by all accounts, people actually enjoy the insurance yeah. they get from Obamacare. Connect as a marketplace worked pretty well. Medicaid expansion worked pretty well. Uh, but it did not become popular. It did not become sacrosanct. Uh, and and this is the context because it's really interesting what you found when you talked to, to folks there. Yeah. So I went in with an expectation from some of the reporting I'd done before that the story I would find is that people just like didn't understand um, 
that their health insurance was part of Obamacare. And it's like, in retrospect, like a bit of like a patronizing expectation, honestly. Like, oh, these people, if only they knew, if only they understood how health insurance worked. But it also... It really lined up with what people were saying. Like this was Governor Bashir's expectation. They called it Connect. They called it Connect. You know, yeah. Medicaid. There, it's very hard to find any mention of Obamacare when you sign up for one of the programs in Kentucky. Like you're going to the Connect Marketplace, or you're signing up for Medicaid, and that's run by some private third party company. When I talked to Governor Bashir, when I talked to um, enrollment counselors in Kentucky, they would say people would ask them, like, is this Obamacare? And they'd say, no, 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 no. This is a Kentucky-based marketplace. And they didn't care. Like, they were totally fine conning people into health insurance. And I think, like, it operated under this political theory you're discussing, Ezra, that at some point there'd be this moment where they'd be like, aha, it's Obamacare. <laughs> and everyone would be like, oh, that Obamacare thing. That's, like, well, or, pretty or, good. Or the political theory could have gone the other way, right? Republicans could have said, could have decided to embrace the con. Right. And said, oh, man, fuck Obamacare. And then when Democrats were like, well, that's going to take away your health insurance, they'd be like, no, 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 Connect is fine. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. Right. I mean, Medicaid I, expansion is fine. Right. And when, I mean, I, I think the theory that like Barack Obama would become popular in Kentucky because of this was mm-hmm. always a, a bank shot. But the idea that like the benefits themselves would somehow become untouchable, mm-hmm. like I really, like, I thought that like right up until the day after Matt Bevin was elected. I do want to note the it proved a little bit more true than I think the Matt Bevin campaign would would have. Yes. Um, so anyways, this, all, we should get into this was my <laughs> expectation going into Kentucky, that I'd find all these people who didn't understand that their benefits are part of Obamacare and that this weird Kentucky, like, con people into insurance thing had actually backfired. Um, it turns out I did not find that at all. I talked to one guy who fit into this category who, um, you know, who was on Medicaid expansion. When I asked him what Obamacare was, he said it was Obama taking people's money to take $5 million vacations to the Bahamas. So it, which I that could not. That seems like a terrible law. It, it really, <laughs> I mean, for Obama, it's an excellent law. Yeah, I don't support that And at I all. don't even know how you could spend $5 million on a vacation. But anyways, um, this That's is the, the only person. service cost. Oh, there you go. Um, <laughs> this is the only person I met who kind of fit this idea I had going in. Um, most people I met were quite different. They really understood what Obamacare was, they understood their benefits were part of Obamacare. And everyone I met voted for Trump, and they said they did so for, for really two reasons. One, they just didn't expect Trump to follow through on repeal. Like this idea, it kind of goes back to some of the writing, you know, Matt has done on taking on, what is it, not taking Trump literally, literally. taking him seriously, not taking him literally. Well, I think they took him neither seriously nor yes. literally. Um, and that people really did have serious issues with affordability that they were quite frustrated with that kind of led them to think there needs to be a change. Trump is the change candidate. And I, I and they were struggling to afford their insurance. Um, the person who really blew my mind on this trip was this woman, Kathy, I met, who was the Obamacare enrollment worker I was shadowing. I kind of went in thinking, if you signed people up for Obamacare, you probably voted for Clinton. Turns out Kathy, who had signed up literally more people for Obamacare than she can count, supported Trump, which, like, when she told me this, like, if you guys could have seen my face, it was just like, what? And she really, like, fit these two categories that, you know, I was just talking about, that she just did not believe Trump would reveal Obamacare. You know, she understood process. She kept saying, well, you know, he can't do it unilaterally. He has to get Congress on board. It's not just him. And she, you know, has seen as she's been enrolling people in Obamacare for three years, she's seen premiums go up, deductibles go up. She has this frustration with the costs that people are paying. And she took those two things together and she decided – and she voted for Obama the last two elections. Can like, I read a quote from your interview with her? Yes, Because I ahead. think it's really fascinating. So Sarah wrote this amazing story about this article but also put up two transcripts of the interviews from this article, both of which are fascinating. But but here's a – from her interview with Kathy Oler. Uh, Sarah asks, did you hear Trump talking about repealing Obamacare in the campaign? And, and Kathy Oler said, yeah, he was going to get rid of it. But I found out with Trump, he says a lot of stuff, laughs. I just think all politicians promise you everything and then we'll see. It's like when you get married. Oh, honey, I won't do this. Oh, honey, I won't do that. So th- this really goes to this idea uh, in, in a pretty profound way. And you hear her talk about it as the interview goes on that she doesn't believe he'll repeal Obamacare because that would just hurt a lot of people. It hurt a right. lot of people who voted for him. Why would he? Do right. that. You say what you say to get elected, but you're not going to do something crazy like that. Yeah. I mean, and this was like 
pervasive with like there's another woman who I also put up a transcript with my interview, um, Debbie Mills, who was um, mm-hmm. 53, signing up for coverage for her and her husband. Um, they couldn't afford coverage on their own before the ACA. Her husband's really sick, needs a liver transplant. And they actually weren't really upset about the premiums. They were getting such a large subsidy that they found it quite affordable. And, you know, when I talked to Debbie about—and she voted for Trump. And when I talked to her about her vote for Trump, she it was like the same thing. Like, well, oh, health insurance. You don't take away people's health insurance. Like, why would you take away anyone's health insurance? And she, more than Kathy, in the course of our interview, seemed to be, like, getting it. Like, seemed to be—and it was a hard interview to conduct just because she— it, like, switched from me asking her questions to her asking me questions about, like, oh, is my insurance going to change? And, like, me kind of walking her through, like, what I know about all these things. To the extent that anybody in America has a strong incentive to, like, look into the details <laughs> of what are people's policy positions on uh, insurance coverage for low-income people mm-hmm. – on the individual market with serious pre-existing health problems. Mm-hmm. Like this family really fits the bill. Yes. Right. And they evidently did not do any looking into this. Or believe what they found. I think it's, voting. yeah, I think it's more of, because they are people, I mean, they watched the debates. They heard, you know, there's a part of the interview I did with Debbie where I said, are you surprised to hear Republicans talking so much about repeal? And she said, no. And then I asked her, well, what will did you think they would repeal it when you voted? And she said, no, I didn't I didn't think so. And I think she's still like when we started the interview, still saw it like as campaign, like 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 saw it as not a real change. And I mean, it is to be to, to be generous to the Republicans, like they do have replacement plans that may or may not. Like, I think they will likely be worse for someone in Debbie's situation, but you know, there is there is a plan to do some kind of replace, um, and that's like the hard part to navigate with someone like that. But there's another fascinating piece of context here, particularly for why people specifically in Kentucky might think that Republican politicians who run on a campaign of repealing Obamacare are lying. Yes. So Matt Bevin ran in Kentucky on a campaign of repealing not just like getting rid of the Connect marketplace, getting rid of Medicaid, overhauling Medicaid, o- overhauling Medicaid, but in like a very restrictive in, way. So far, he has to some degree backed off of some of that stuff, to some degree not been able to do yeah, it. Yeah, but he did. I mean, he dismantled Connect. But the state moved right. it over to the moved federal it. marketplace. Right. And he, I mean, he is likely, the thing that has stood in his way of overhauling Medicaid is the Obama administration. Right. And he's likely going to deliver. Right. But this is what I mean. But, that but a person I think might that, have t- yeah. drawn but, the inference. So I did not, this did not come up like that's once. A, yeah, in my, no one said, Oh well, he's not going to repeal Obamacare because look at look at what Governor Bevin did. He made these promises and he did anything. So, I mean, this this is a small sample, but that totally. I, I understand that like line of thinking. So, so um, I think one thing that we need to consider in this discussion because there, there are two ways of looking at what you were told here, and and these are two ways that we've discussed mm-hmm. on the show before. One is to say that these voters have. To the extent that they were Obamacare voters, right? And maybe they, maybe other things were just more important yeah. to them. And, and so they wiped out the cognitive dissonance on, on the Obamacare issue by not taking Trump particularly seriously. But there's one way of looking at it, which is that these voters have made a grievous mistake. They thought Republicans would not do this. They thought Trump would not do this. And they will and he will. Another way is to say maybe they're right. Mm-hmm. Maybe when um, Debbie goes to you and says, but he wouldn't do that, that would hurt a lot of people that at some point. Tom Price or somebody in Tom Price's office or the Congressional Budget Office is going to go to the Trump administration um, or people or the folks in Congress and say, here are going to be the consequences of the plan. And Steve Bannon, who does not, I think, care all that much about this stuff, but does care about, you know, getting reelected and and all the things that chief strategist cares about are going to say, well, we can't do that. Like, that, that's not a good idea. Or Donald Trump will decide that's not a good idea. So wh- I just want to raise the mm-hmm. possibility. I lean more in some ways towards the former interpretation, but it could be, and 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 this is something that I, I, I take seriously, that these voters will prove right that what we're mm-hmm. seeing here is not, it's not voters being wrong about the incentives, but voters representing or showing what Trump's real incentives are going to be. Because if a lot of people, if he makes a lot of people in Kentucky suffer, um, presumably it's not going to make him lose Kentucky in 2020, but it could make him lose other places that are that are closer. I do think like Mitch McConnell's tireless effort over a period of years to block a bill whose like only purpose is to help Kentucky co-workers like cast some 
doubt into this question. I mean, I think like Kentucky Republican Party politicians have demonstrated a like profound desire to like inflict pain on residents of Kentucky and the voters there <laughs> don't really care. Um, and like Anthony Downs is like classic point about voter ignorance is that like you can say that Kathy made a grievous mistake, but like what would really have been like a profound mistake for Kathy would have been to spend a lot of time getting in touch with like leading experts, reading all the best stuff, forming the opinion that actually what she needed to do was like break with her friends and family and community, embrace Hillary Clinton, vote for somebody who like nobody who she knew liked and who she didn't particularly feel an emotional connection with um, to save her Obamacare because um, that would not have made any difference. Right. Right. Like having arguments with your friends and family. But she also voted who, for Obama to election. Sure. So like. Right. Yes. I, I mean, I, I, like, I just I just mean in general, yes, in general sure. you have a real incentive in your life. It makes yeah. a real difference in your life, whether you get along with your friends and family and coworkers, getting into like bitter, vicious arguments about politics will make your life worse. Changing your vote particularly in a non-swing state like Kentucky, is not going to change who becomes president. And so, like, there is no good reason for a person to try to become an informed voter who votes based on issues rather than being an identity politics voter who goes along with what are people like me doing in the world, right? I mean, it's you can you can use the, like, verbiage of, like, irrationality, but, like, what ignorant... People are behaving in a rationally ignorant way when they vote the same way that people who are like them are voting and when they then um, choose to believe that – I mean one, one thing we often see, right, that, that's a, a sort of a classic result is that if there's a completely abstract issue that clearly has no impact on your life, like should the president make phone calls to Taiwan, you will just take which politicians you like. And agree with whatever it is they're saying. When it affects you directly, like this Obamacare thing, like that's harder, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you if your husband's getting a liver transplant, it's like hard to say, oh, Trump is right, he should lose his insurance. So you make this other move, which is like, well, we all know politicians sometimes say things that mm-hmm. don't happen. So maybe this is one of those things. Mm-hmm. And like all of that, that like reasoning to the conclusion that the people who you are most likely to talk about politics with are voting for the right person. Like, that's the rational response. Like, being some jerk who's, like, telling everyone they're wrong and, like, actually, Obamacare is really good. Like, that would be terribly irrational. It's not going to change the election. It's going to make your life bad. Mm If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors, flavors or sweeteners. So you can feel okay about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. They got great apples. They got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzely things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. That's a good opportunity to try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because NatureBox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com weeds. So you go to naturebox.com weeds. Uh, that way we get credit. You get 50% off your first order. naturebox.com weeds. I want to go back to so your question about like, will these people be proven right? Because it's just something I've thought about. And I think if we were in a scenario where Republicans are talking about doing repeal and replace at the same time, and we're on this like long timeline that would seem plausible to me. The reason I feel like it's less plausible is it seems very clear like repeal mechanics are going to start the first week of January, and like we are going to move towards repeal quite quickly before there's really time for that campaign of like look at the consequences to build. And then like we have repeal, we have the marketplaces starting to collapse. Like it ends up being this like slow motion train wreck that that seems harder to like put 
back once you once you started with that first repeal vote. Oh, um, I kind of I actually agree with this. I I think a lot depends on how they structure their repeal effort if they're still mm-hmm. trying to do this two year. Well, that's you know, where yeah, that's, that's where what they're saying right, right now. That's what they're saying. Um, um, but the mechanics of it are very. I, I do want to know that the mechanics go both ways. The mechanics of how these things will go through the committees, the mechanics of what is going to be scored by CBO, I mean, all of that stuff will actually force some time on consequences. Yeah. Can I, now, yeah. as, as you say, like there's going to be this period where possibly they're going to accidentally collapse the marketplaces as an interim measure. But if I am not sure that goes in the direction of making repeal more likely so much mm-hmm. as being a taste of the pain you might mm-hmm. inflict upon yourself if you okay. went all the way. Fair. So one other thing I found in the Kentucky reporting that I think was like helpful to understand why people were voting the way that they were voting was just like a lot of resentment towards welfare programs and a lot of resentment towards mm-hmm. the poor. And um, this is really one of the unexpected ways I-, I found Medicaid expansion playing out where I talked and, you know, Kathy was part of this group. I, I talked to a lot of people who saw people using Medicaid, who saw these people who um, – because right now the marketplace plans can be quite expensive even if you're low income, like pretty high. Um, I was looking at some data. I think it was from Commonwealth Fund that the average deductible for a mid-level plan this year is $3,500. Um, right. You know, low-income people are getting some subsidies to help it, um, you know, be um, a little bit less onerous. But just really high cost sharing in these marketplace plans. And I heard a number of people saying – I work and I have to pay all this money to go to the doctor. I can't afford to go to the doctor because my deductible is so high. And, like, look at these people on Medicaid. Like, they can go to the ER for a headache and they don't deserve it. Like, I work and I deserve this help and these other people don't deserve this help. And, um, you know, even Kathy talked a little bit about this where she was saying she um, she gets frustrated at people mm-hmm. who are on Medicaid and don't work. And she feels like there's some lazy people who are using it and, and – would be penalized for for working. And, you know, I think there are – it was actually in Colorado last week when I wasn't on the weeds, and I was um, talking to um, – God, this is going to sound like such a Tom Friedman story. But I was talking to my shuttle driver who had gotten a 12-cent raise. I think he's earning eight forty four an hour now, and it bumped him off of Medicaid into exchange coverage. And all of a sudden he can't afford – he says he can't afford his coverage and just decided to drop it and, and like, is really frustrated that he got this, like, tiny – Raised and, and then now he doesn't. I, I made a strong case for looking again at premiums. We'll see if he <laughs> sure. goes for it. But um, I, I mean, I think that was quite potent. And this backlash to Medicaid expansion was something I had not expected to see, but also really seemed to factor into people's decision to support Trump. Yeah, Democrats are really wanted the election to be about the resentment. They want all elections to be about the n- resentment of the 99% versus the 1%. And something Trump understood in a sort of profound way is that there's a very powerful resentment from like the 43rd percentile of the mm-hmm. income distribution against the 17th or the 32nd against the 14th. And, you know, there are a lot of things you can take from this, right? I think one version of this is that it's an argument for universalism in programs. Um, but universalizing programs makes them much more expensive. Uh, and so you then have the upfront cost of trying to convince people that that their taxes should go up by quite a bit. When you looked at, say, the Bernie Sanders' single-payer plan, that had a lot of both middle-class and, and upper-middle-class tax increases in it, uh, which maybe is the right trade-off. It just – all these things have something that, that makes them harder. But this is a real issue. Uh, you know, And it has, I want to note – your reporting was not able to answer how racialized this is. Mm-mm. There's a lot of. I mean, this raci- is a very white area. Yeah, but as well. but there are a lot of racial issues within the sort of working class versus mm-hmm. poor kind of language that you hear. Oftentimes, that is standing in for another argument that is less socially acceptable to have. But but this stuff is powerful. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, I, I also think there's a real like program design issue here, sure. right? I mean, there's there's one thing about like means testing of programs, right? And if you look at like classic Obamacare with the sliding scale subsidy, right? That's a means tested rather than a universal program. There are some downsides to that. In particular, there's a certain like sawtoothy structure where there's like a, 
a couple of bend points where your income going up slightly actually hurts you financially, which is like not great. And they probably should have thought harder about continuous functions and uh, the existence of graphing calculators. Um, and, and, and there's also the fact that means-tested programs can breed this kind of uh, this kind of resentment mm-hmm. to you know people who are above 400 percent of the poverty line aren't getting any help, mm-hmm. but. You know, the upside is that it, it's not as expensive. You don't need to raise taxes as much. And within that sort of like core sliding scale Obamacare, the fact of the matter still is, is that people at 200 percent of the poverty line are better off than people at 150 percent of the poverty line. You can have whatever resentments you want, but like you are definitely better off. The Medicaid expansion thing – I don't believe, in part because they changed around how big the Medicaid expansion was relatively late in the process, I don't think that the authors of the bill spent a lot of time considering whether being on Medicaid would actually be better for you than being on these exchange plans, right? Clearly, in their their minds, Medicaid was supposed to be inferior to these plans, right? If they thought Medicaid was actually like better, the bill would have been even more Medicaid expansion, right? I mean, it wouldn't necessarily have been like Bernie Sanders single payer, but like they thought with this exchange architecture that they were creating like a superior system. Right, that people would want. Well, you actually, if you look at surveys of um, marketplace and Medicaid enrollees, Medicaid enrollees are happier with their coverage. And I think it speaks to some of those issues people in Kentucky were bringing up, like the cost sharing is way lower. There's no deductibles. Um, Your network is probably more restricted, but the marketplace networks are pretty restricted too. Um, I actually heard from – right now I run this group of Obamacare enrollees for Vox, um, myself and Lauren Katz, one of our social media managers. And a, one, Facebook a Facebook it's group. A Facebook yes, group. Yes, this is not people. like an in-person thing <laughs> where we all hang out. Um, we have this Facebook group of people who use Obamacare programs. And one guy posted a story. He's um, – gosh, I forget what kind of work he does. But he actually asked his manager to reduce his hours so he could stay on Medicaid right. and not go to marketplace coverage because he values – the cheap coverage more than he would value earning more. Yeah, so it, it seems to me that that's just like genuinely like an error. That if you could roll back to 2007 when like Max Baucus is starting to do hearings about this, Ted Kennedy is thinking about like what's his more liberal vision going to be. If everybody knew, okay, this like exchange thing that we've picked up from like maybe Mitt Romney or maybe an old New America Foundation paper or whatever, people are actually going to prefer Medicaid. Mm-hmm. Like – why bother? Well, and like when going you, through all the work of creating this, you could have yeah. created some kind of a Medicaid buy-in system, right? I mean, if it, if it was just about the money, you could have done something else. Like the goal of the exchanges was to create like a good solution for. Yeah, people. although there 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 are two things there though that I think are are getting a little bit underplayed. So remember that Medicaid was always cheaper. Actually, one of the tensions right. in the bill was that if you just ratcheted up Medicaid, you actually made the bill less expensive. Right. Because Medicaid insurance is cheaper on a per unit uh, basis than than private insurance. And one of the things that was happening at that point, there were a bunch of efforts to prove to people like Max Baucus that this wasn't just a single payer in disguise bill. Right. That oftentimes, in some ways, the better example, this is Medicare. Yeah, yeah. Medicare is a much less freighted program in American politics. People really like it. Members of Congress really like it. There's not this, I think, often a little bit bullshitty argument about whether or not Medicare insurance actually uh, helps you. And so what you got there was there was a, a move late in the game to create a Medicare buy-in uh, for people who are down to age 55. So again, here, you're, you're just letting people make a choice. You're not even making them be on it. It's not a new single-payer program. Uh, and that was killed by every Republican and, and Joe Lieberman. <laughs> and so just one of the things that, that went on here in a way that I do think negatively influenced program design was you had this one of the slightly underarticulated but nevertheless fairly binding arguments that was coming from the conservative Democrats was that this couldn't just be like the road to single payer. It had they, they really had to be setting up mm-hmm. some kind of private insurance based well, choice architecture even when that was worse, even when it was obvious that what people were going to get out of that was a worse program. Right. But I mean, I, I guess I'm saying from from the liberal point of view, right? I mean, it's just like a decision was made to like go for this, right? And if everyone had just known in advance, like, well, what's yeah. going to happen mm-hmm. is that X years into it, people are going to be saying, 
oh, man, I wish I was on Medicaid. Like yeah. progressives would have just set their aspirations differently. Sure. I mean, one of the risks, like as we're saying, you lose a few conservative Democrats. And I think you also like you look at Massachusetts at that point and you say, oh, that's like seems to be working. Like right. Massachusetts is a much more affluent population, which might explain some of the differences. Um, you know, I think one of the things I didn't expect, given the Massachusetts experience, that the marketplace would struggle to attract carriers, mm-hmm. that premiums would go up because the marketplace became more concentrated so I think they saw Massachusetts and said, like, that seems to be working. And, like, the people on the private coverage in Massachusetts seem to be doing all right. And I think Massachusetts didn't even subsidize as much. I think they only went up to 300 yeah, percent to the poverty line, not four. And, like, I understand. I under, I agree, like, knowing right. what we know now. But I also totally understand how at the time that seemed like an OK decision. Well, it's, it's ironic because there was a lot of influence on the legislation from from Max Baucus, mm-hmm. from from Tom Daschle, who was out of the Senate, um, from Ben Nelson, from from uh, Democrats who represent a very rural type constituencies. And it looks like in retrospect, they really underplayed, misunderstood, actually, how much uh, regional sort of differences would matter here that in much more urbanized areas like Massachusetts, this competition structure like works a lot more Mm -hmm. effectively than it does in some of like the kinds of places that they were from. And like, I think it would actually have not occurred to me to like strongly second guess Max Baucus about like what can work in the state of Montana. That like seems like something he would know a lot about. Um, but but it turns out that in low population density areas, it's very difficult to get like robust competition between insurance networks. There's been this discussion, pretty since the election, about how economic policy needs to do more for struggling areas. How the big lesson that everybody needs to learn from the sort of rage that uh, and and sense of left behindedness that elected Trump is that you can't just forget about. Pennsylvania ex steel towns. But there are some issues with this. Yes. Which Matt Iglesias is going Yeah, to so, you know, this is like a funny thing for like longtime economic geography nerds um, because I do think that America should do more to help struggling regions with like entrenched networks of, of economic deprivation. And it is also true that Donald Trump got elected president because he narrowly won in Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin, uh, which if you throw in Ohio, which he won pretty uh, heavily, uh, but which Obama won twice, that forms a contiguous belt of states. Uh, they are around the Great Lakes. There is a region there where Donald Trump did a lot better than Barack Obama. Um, I think you can even point to a specific economic reason why he did a lot better there uh, than than Mitt Romney had. This area is also often referred to as the quote-unquote rust belt. That sounds really bad. (laughs) Um, But if you look at it, one reason this is like a swing region in elections is very average. It is a very, very average region. Uh, Wisconsin is a slightly above average income state. Uh, Michigan is a slightly below average income state. Pennsylvania is exactly average. And when you think about Pennsylvania, it's actually – it's like – Average in what? uh, Median household income. It's an extraordinarily average state, right? It contains in Philadelphia like a big northeastern city. It contains in Pittsburgh what's more like a medium-sized midwestern city. It's got a big rurally small town place. Like it's a swing state because it's so freaking average. (laughs) Um, If you want to find a place that's poor – Right. Where like we really like people need help. You got to look at the uh, Mississippi Delta region where uh, Julia Blues recently did a a great Vox story from a a part of Louisiana. That's like that very rural, very remote, very poor, quite heavily African-American. And you have to look in Appalachia, right, which is mostly West Virginia, a tiny strip of Ohio, eastern Kentucky, a lot of Tennessee, extending down really into Arkansas, where they call the mountains Ozarks rather than than Appalachia Mountains, very, very white part of the country, uh, politics quite distinct, um, but very conservative, right? So the Mississippi Delta is is pretty liberal because there's so many African-Americans there, but the way the state boundaries are drawn up, it's parts of Mississippi, Louisiana, you know, uh, parts of, of conservative states. Appalachia is a very, very conservative region. Um, it would not... If Democrats rolled out like a great program for Appalachia, they might get some more votes there, but they would still lose. So like there's no point. 
Um, well, no political point. No political point. Right. <laughs> I mean, right. they did that with Obama. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they did not get political points. Well, they had some. See our earlier Kentucky See discussion. See earlier. I mean, there's some countervailing reasons that they yes, didn't do it. Yes, but but the point is, even if they did, right, you, Democrats are not like a, a hair's breadth away from winning Kentucky. You would not, you can think as a Democrat, okay, what should we do to win back these Rust Belt states? Or you could reasonably say, look, we need to think about North Carolina and Arizona. There's like no good argument politically for thinking about Kentucky. Um, no one ever has wanted to think about Mississippi politically. Um, I think 1976 was like the only election ever in which it was remotely a close state. Um, But those are the places where if you're concerned about like questions of substance, they have above average poverty rates, way below average median income, and they have been like that for a long time. I just read from the the West Virginia uh, Budget Center, the state affiliate of Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. They have a great report out uh, with the uh, appealing SEO uh, headline, (laughs) Why is West Virginia so poor? Um, And the interesting thing I I learned in there was not exactly why West Virginia is so poor, but that it's like kind of always been poor. Since at least the late 19th century, it's been like one of the poorest states in the union. They had a brief sort of golden moment in the sun during the oil crisis years that everyone else remembers as having been terrible uh, was like they kind of approached averageness, uh, but never been above average. Um, So that's a really serious problem that we should probably think about some as a society, but like there's no votes in it. So so another way of framing what you're saying is that you can imagine a set of policies that are oriented towards places that are persistently poor. Yes. Uh, particularly when you, and I, I want to know, we're talking about states. It is, of course, a case that there are very poor rural counties in Pennsylvania. There are poor areas in Ohio. But, you know, we're, we're talking here primarily about states. So you can imagine a policy that targets states that are very poor. You can imagine a policy that targets states that are very politically competitive and very politically important. And these would just not be the same policies. Right. And there's sort of been a convenient forgetting of that. Uh, there's been a, an an enormous outpouring of sympathy for specifically the struggles of white workers in swing states, (laughs) which speaks to incentives created by the Electoral College, uh, but is maybe not the best way to think about making And also, presumably, if you're a a white working class resident of Michigan who feels, okay, you know, I've been struggling and now like – China's got all these jobs and we're talking about how black lives matter and how immigrants are great. And, you know, you're feeling like, oh, more and more people are like getting ahead of me in line. Like, when is somebody going to help me? Um, If people roll out their big like here at last assistance for like needy communities and it turns out they're helping needy communities in Louisiana, Arkansas, Mississippi, you're going to be like, Jesus fucking Christ. (laughs) This is getting like worse than ever. Right. Um, And so if you're actually talking like very literally, like most Americans are white. Uh, most white people are working class. Uh, the, the Midwest is a very average economically region. It's This is like super boring, but you're talking about like really average outcomes, right? Like would help white working class people in Wisconsin. If just like on average things were a little bit better, that would probably – probably be good for there. Um, But if you're politically trying to make a point about like a specific regional focus, sometimes I guess people just like cast all principle to the wind and do something for a narrow partisan motive. But like that's what you'd be talking about. Like there's nothing particularly wrong with Wisconsin. I guess I'm curious like whether, and this really ties back to our Kentucky discussion, like if any of this works, if kind of going back, like if we roll out benefits to help people who are economically disadvantaged, like does that lead to political gain? When I was reporting this story about Kentucky, I talked to one political scientist at Vanderbilt who's studying this exact issue. He's interviewing Medicaid enrollees in Kentucky and um, looking at, like, if their politics, if anything changed, are they more motivated to vote? Does anything change when you roll out benefits? And the answer he's basically found is no, like, that there's no real change. And, like, if you look, you know, Michigan, Pennsylvania, those are both Medicaid expansion right. states. Like, they got— Benefits. I, I guess I'm a little skeptical, and I have a lot of ideas on why things have gotten different, but it seems a lot harder to roll out benefits in a way that all of a sudden they become like institutionalized and defended as the way Medicare and Medicaid have been since the 1960s. 
yeah, I guess this the reporting trip like left me very skeptical that police-based policies are going to translate into political well, gains. I mean, I never talk to ordinary voters, uh, but what <laughs> elitist journalists who do tell me I would know if I talk to real voters is that what people want is a decent paying job, not a welfare check from the government. So that like rather than taxing rich Americans mm-hmm. to give health care benefits to desperately poor people, what we ought to do is uh, erect tariff barriers that immiserate the majority of Americans while also immiserating billions of very, very poor people in Asia, because that will help slightly below average paid factory workers make a little bit more money. And Maybe. Maybe. But I, I mean, that's what people say. <laughs> yes. that, that is what people say I would learn if I talked to real voters. Um, I am happy to concede <laughs> that that is – it seems to me that that is in fact what white working class voters in the industrial Midwest want. Uh, We have a good piece uh, coming up on Vox, uh, an interview with uh, Gary Peters, a Democratic senator from Michigan, talking about you know, what Hillary Clinton did wrong. He says she should have come to more UAW halls, that people, union leaders appreciated that she turned against TPP, but there was a lot of distrust built up there, and those people needed to hear it from her, you know, directly build that personal kind of attention. Um, Donald Trump seems to think this. Everybody seems to think that, like, giving people uh, medicine for free uh, does not win votes, but that um, maybe slowing the pace of factory closures by wreaking economic devastation on Asia would win votes. Um, But the question, again, is that, like, it's worth noting that leaving aside the international element, what you're talking about when you're talking about protectionism for American manufactured workers just domestically is not really a transfer from fancy coastal people who don't actually spend that highest share of their income on imported goods. You're talking about an economic transfer from residents of places like eastern Kentucky and Mississippi to residents of not rich but more affluent areas like Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania. Now, politics is politics, right? So, like, that may well be the policy outcome that we get. But there is something, like, genuinely perverse about taxing the poor in order to sustain middle-class jobs in middle-income states. So two things here. One is I, I want to put a pin in for a future discussion. We should talk about ideas of jobs guarantee and big public job efforts because yep. I think that's actually pretty relevant here. There, there's been a focus for a lot of reasons on transfer payments uh, and to some degree on retraining services, things like that, as opposed to just – Hiring people to do stuff that may or may not be a high productivity job. Yeah, but yeah, maybe yeah. that was a mistake, right? Yes. And I think that's one way to read that argument. Um, the other, though, is this feels to me like a good segue to our paper of the week. Oh, yes. It's yeah. magisteria. Okay. So this is a great paper on on trade, but it's, it's, it's like a, a literature review, right? It's from El Hanan Helpman. Um, and he's got – this is a, actually an interesting guy. It's, it's worth reviewing his, his biography a little bit because I think it's relevant to the paper. Um, he's born in Kyrgyzstan, uh, which at the time was part of the Soviet Union, grew up there. He moved with his family to Poland. Uh, they later emigrated from Poland to Israel. Uh, he went to school in Israel and then he came to the U.S. to do graduate work. He taught in Israel. He taught again in the United States. Uh, so when he talks about globalization and inequality, he has a very uh, a globalization, <laughs> a global view of it, right? And, you know, one of the big things he says is that, okay, uh, there is this result in theoretical economics, Stolper-Samuelson theorem, which says that if a rich country like the United States uh, opens the door to trade with low-wage countries, that what's going to happen is, is that the abundant factor, low-skilled labor, is going to suffer and that the scarce factor, high-skilled work, is going to benefit. Um, so the United States did open the door to trade with low-wage countries and during – after that happened – Exactly that Stolper-Samuelson gap did open up. So it is both true that a lot of people feel in their gut that, like, they've been fucked over by globalization. And it is true that there is, like, this good textbook economics explanation of why that would happen. The point he takes by being an economist of globalization who has a global perspective is that that same theorem says that the opposite thing should happen in the low-wage countries, right, and that the wage gap in China ought to have narrowed for the same reasons that trade with the United States would would cause it to expand. And you don't actually see that happening. 
um, that the sort of uh, gap between high-skilled and low-skilled workers opening up occurs in all the different countries that you look at. Um, so whatever the mechanism is that is causing the inequality to grow cannot predominantly be that factor price equalization dynamic, that you have not seen a shrinking of inequality in Asian countries that offsets the growth in, in Western countries. He then reviews like a bajillion <laughs> other theoretical and empirical <laughs> models of this kind of thing. Just to point out, I guess the, the broad way is that like a lot of different things go into generating economic outcomes. Um, there are many different reasons that you could see inequality grow. Um, and there is, I, I think his exact line is no theoretical or empirical basis for the belief that this predominantly relates to globalization. So so one thing I want to do here is just draw out a little bit about that theorem because I think it's yeah. interesting. So what, what that theorem is arguing is that America opened – let's just use America and China here yeah. uh, as you did. So America opens up trade with China. That means that there is suddenly a lot of low-skilled labor for a company that manufactures steel to choose from. They right. can choose from all of the low-skilled labor in America and also all of the low-skilled labor in China. And the low-skilled labor in China is cheaper. So that is why, in theory, wages for low-skilled labor in America go down and wages for low-skilled labor in China go up because like, the steel company ends up somewhere in the middle of those two. Uh, at the same time, if you're a Chinese company and what you are trying to do is you know, buy really good software for your computers, it is potentially the case that better software is being made in America. And if the trade is open, then all of a sudden you're giving your money to American software programmers in order to get more Apple software or Microsoft Office or whatever it might and be. And like you do see this. And you there do, are iPhones. You, and totally. And you see all this. Um, and so by the same token, you know, like like literally the exact same reverse thing, high skilled wages go down in China because more of that demand is moved to the product of high skilled labor in America. And what's interesting here is that we saw that happen in America, but because we don't have that much of a global perspective, didn't notice that it didn't happen in China. The fact that it didn't happen in China actually is a pretty profound challenge to our narrativization of that theory. Yeah, exactly. This paper kind of – we've talked about trade on the show before and it feels like it speaks to some of the larger conclusions about trade. That you see like these changes. There's a lot of talk about it and like very concentrated populations that are affected. But then when you look at it in like a big sense, it's not like the major driver of a lot of the economic trends that we're seeing. Because I think in the conclusion of this paper – he says, like, you know, it seems like there might be a small effect. There, there might be – I forget what exactly the word he uses yeah. to describe it. There's an effect, but then you look at, like, changes in equality taken all together and it doesn't feel like it's it's really the driver. That yeah. We talk a lot about trade and, like, you heard a lot about TPP and um, trade in the election. But then you look at kind of the macro effect on the U.S. and it feels like actually quite, quite small. And, and he also makes a, a valuable point about David – Autor's research, which is often written up on the internet mm -hmm. as showing that the old pro-trade conventional wisdom was wrong and that actually trade like devastated American mm -hmm. communities. And as, uh, uh, as he writes, what those papers actually say is that trade with China increased the income of the average American while devastating certain specific right. communities. Right. Now, that's an important thing to think yes. about mm -hmm. um, differential effects the, 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 the really damage important. the damage to those particular communities but still he's saying most americans ended up better off mm -hmm. not that the one percent benefited and certain factory well most were... americans ended up like a tiny bit better off and right. then some people ended up way way worse yes off, yes right? yes like it, i have cheaper avocados but someone else doesn't exactly. have a job but so while that is a fascinating and profound problem it is a totally different <laughs> problem from income inequality Right, like right, which the, is what this paper is actually looking e exactly. at. Exactly. Another important point about it. This is not what did trade do. This right. is trade and income inequality. Right, right. E exactly. So it's just to say that if your big concern – and it's like a tension because people who want to like quote unquote do something to fix the economy need to decide what it is they think like mm -hmm. the problem is, right? So – Per our last discussion, like one problem is like entrenched poverty in certain poor regions of the United States. A separate problem is regions of the United States that are not poor but are poorer than they were 15 years ago. Then like a third problem is the median household 
income in the United States. Um, and I think there's very little reason to think at least that the causes of these things are the same, right? That um, trade is clearly the driver of the decline of certain specific communities. Those communities are still not the worst off regions of the United States. And income inequality, which is a very profound and the median income in the United States has barely budged in something like 30 years, even though GDP per capita has gone up a lot because a relatively small number of elite professionals have seen their incomes go up a lot. That is a really interesting – Thomas Piketty's book was a big deal. We are the 99 percent was a good slogan. The new Walsh Chetty paper yeah. shows that potentially this is the main cause by which social mobility is slowed down. Exactly. But trade does not look like the big – driver of that. Now, I should give credit to some people like uh, uh, Jeff Foe has a book that's old and it's about NAFTA, uh, but it's called The Global Class War, even though there are other countries in the world besides the U.S. and Mexico. Um, he argues that the like specific terms of these deals are really structured in a pro-inequality kind of way. Um, Dean Baker likes to use the specific example of medical doctors uh, who have very high earnings in the United States. Um, somehow, whenever our trade negotiators work out trade deals, we are never trying to obtain for American citizens the benefits of lower cost uh, medical services around the world. We are like relentlessly focused on getting cheaper and cheaper socks. And there is like a good question as to like, why is that the determination? Uh, you have to be quite poor in the United States for your big problem in life to be the unaffordability of socks. Uh, many people struggle to afford healthcare services. Um, those services are provided cheaper in many places around the world. Our trade policy like could be trying to, to get them. I think those are all interesting questions. It's still like hard to say that like that's why hedge fund managers make – there was some stat. It's like 10 hedge fund managers make more money than all the kindergarten teachers in America combined. Mm -hmm. um, that's a good like left-wing talking point. Um, and I think it pretty clearly doesn't have anything at all to do with TPP. Probably a good place to end. Um, yeah. This has been another episode of The Weeds. Thank you to my colleagues, Matt Iglesias and Sarah Clift, our producer of Theme Shapiro. The Weeds is a Vox.com and Panoply production. I'll take this opportunity to quickly plug The Ezra Klein Show, my other podcast, which this week I interviewed Tim Wu, a law professor at Columbia. He's the father of the term and the idea of network neutrality. We have a, a pretty interesting discussion actually about antitrust law and whether or not that should be a big priority uh, in, in politics in the, the coming couple of years. Uh, I think folks, it's a pretty weedsy interview. I think folks here will like it. Uh, but even if you don't like it, uh, please share the show, subscribe on iTunes, tell your friends, email it around. I've heard we're a great Christmas present. We're a great Christmas present. We're very I don't affordable. know how you would give it, but uh, but Just maybe like you can tell people. burn a bunch of these shows to a CD-ROM and hand I it to somebody. Know. I mean, I'm Jewish and don't celebrate Christmas, <laughs> but I think you could tell people on Christmas Day. For Hanukkah, each day of Hanukkah, you could give your new episode a new episode. Uh, yeah. It would be amazing. Um, one way or another, we will be back next week.